Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. The perfect guest to start this week's coverage with Jim Karen of Morgan Stanley Investment Management, Fixed Income Portfolio Manager. Jim, first question, sir. What are we doing back up near 150? Well, good morning. Thank you uh, for having me on your show. Look, I think there's a couple of things that are going on. One of them is very technical. One of the reasons why yields were so low was because the Treasury general account had been drawn down so much. Now, that's really technical speak for saying that there wasn't a lot of net issuance of U.S. Treasuries over the last couple of months. In fact, nearly zero net issuance. Today, all of that is starting to change. A lot of things are changing right now that are leading to higher yields. Number one, now we're going to start to get net positive supply. So more positive net supply is coming to the markets. That and the fact that we're getting closer to a deal on the deficit. Then the question becomes, is it going to be um, I'm sorry, a deal on the infrastructure bill. And the question then becomes, is it going to be deficit financed? So that's another uh, argument for higher debt into the future. The third point is tapering. The Fed has announced pretty aggressively, it seems like in uh, at the September FOMC last week, that probably by December, they're going to start tapering. So all of the factors that were keeping yields lower in the second quarter and for part of the third quarter are now starting to run in reverse. And you're seeing yields start to move higher, not to mention that energy prices are moving up and even some of the COVID cases are, are, are on the decline, we could be setting ourselves up for a much stronger, much awaited for fourth quarter. And all of this is, is pushing Treasury yields higher. And it makes sense. Yeah. Jim Karen, when you're on the Gorman Golf Stream, you're flying at 32,000 feet and you're looking down in the yield market, what is the 10-year yield where you signal shift or you signal trip point? We're at a 147, maybe 150, but what's the level where you go, things have changed? I think we're past that. I think it's around 140. The fact that we've gotten back above 140 is telling us that the correction lower in yields is over with. We have to start thinking about yields progressing up back towards the March 31 highs, around 175, even up to 1.8%. And it's even possible that you could start to even test 2% by end of this year, beginning of next year. I think it would be hard to get above 2% and stay there, but I think that's a trajectory that we're on. And the fact that many people have squared up most of their positions, I would say the market's not overly short. So the technicals are, are suggesting that you could actually get a push higher. So Tom, I think that we've already tripped that switch and that we're already in the mode to get towards higher yields, plus all the supply that's coming. Jim, you talked about higher oil prices. We also talk about supply chain disruptions. Are these events, are these uh, appearances inflationary or disinflationary? Lisa, absolutely. It's, it's a great, this is a great point. I'm glad we're talking about this. This is inflationary. Um, what we're going to see are rolling uh, supply shortages. 
And so, so yes, you know, one day it might be one thing, another day it could be natural gas, another day it could be oil. And, and, and you're gonna start to see this just on a rolling basis going forward as these supply chains are getting readjusted. And then when price gets too high, demand will fall, that asset price will come down, and it'll be another asset, a commodity assets turn to start to move higher. So I think this is getting embedded importantly into the psychology of consumers that prices are going to stay perpetually high. That doesn't mean that we have runaway inflation. It just means it's going to be harder to get below 2% inflation. So now think about this. Even the people say the Fed was hawkish. The median dot in 2024 was at 1.75% for the Fed funds rate. But inflation is supposed to is supposed to be between two and two and a half percent, or at least it's being expected to be between two and two and a half percent, which means that the real Fed funds rate is still going to be minus 25 to minus 50 basis points. This is still very accommodative uh, Fed policy at the current moment. There's nothing hawkish about this. So, Jim, let's put all this together. When you say it's hard to get below 2% on inflation, just explain to us in a couple of lines why it's difficult to get above 180 on a 10-year yield. Yeah, well, well, for right now, we are still doing quantitative easing. So there is still some asset purchases that are going through. Bond yields around the world, although they are starting to rise, we're seeing that in Europe, are still very, very low. So I think that there is an interest rate differential, and then it'll come back down to the dollar, dollar appreciation. Um, at least in the near term, you could see some dollar appreciation. That would keep uh, foreign investors in, in interested in the U.S. Treasury market. But that, I think, is a cycle, too. I'm, I'm a long-term dollar bear. Eventually, these deficits and everything else is going to catch up to the dollar, and that's going to push it lower. And foreign investors, which the U.S. demand, you know, relies on heavily for demand, is is going to require higher yields to entice foreign investors to come in and buy U.S. Treasuries. Jim, thank you, sir, as always, and have a good week. Jim Karen there of Morgan Stanley Investment Management, the Fixed Income Portfolio Manager. We've got to start with a fantastic guest this morning, Jean Bavard, head of the BlackRock Investment Institute. Jean, you've got this framework, the new nominal. I'll allow you to explain that in just a moment. The conversation we're having, once we start raising interest rates in America, maybe the back end of next year, who knows, Jean? I can't predict next year. How steep will that policy path be? How shallow will it be? How loose will any potential tightening be? The answer to that, Jean. I think it's going to be the shallowest we've seen in uh, in decades. Um, you know, uh, we have to go back to maybe the 50s or the 60s to see the same kind of shallow patterns. I think we're going to see. So nothing of the you know recent cycle. I think is uh, is a guide much shallower. And I think uh, we've seen much more you know ongoing evidence that they are um, you know on the slow path. Uh, I think they've been very deliberate to try to to separate the taper discussion last week from um, from the liftoff and from from what it's mm -hmm. worked. We cannot predict 2022, but I think it's a 2023 story, the first rate hike. John Bovent, BlackRock and your team unabashedly say you're pro-risk. I mean, you mince no words about it. How do these changes, the worry, worry, worry out there, affect corporate thinking with a higher yield regime, with steepening of the curve and on and on? How does pro-risk come over to corporate action? 
Yeah, so the path ahead uh, for, uh, for um, you know, equities or risk assets to break higher is getting narrower. So, I mean, uh, I just uh, want to acknowledge that. And after a streak, I mean, you look at the chart of the S&P, uh, you, you start in January 2020 and you look at it and there's no way you can tell there's been a pandemic. So, I mean, this does raise question. I think we're going to be in an environment where markets will be more primed to uh, look at risk and maybe uh, more volatility. But in that environment, we still think that the fundamentals are constructive for for the time being, and as a result, we will um, you know look through that. That's where the pro risk uh, on a bashing uh, version uh, is coming from. How concerned are you about what's going on in China with respect to not only the scrutiny of the tech companies, but also what some people are calling an increasing energy crisis, uh, especially as the uh, the regulators try to clamp down on fossil fuel usage ahead of the Olympics. Yeah, so I think, I mean, broader story in, uh, in China is that, uh, you know, the direction of travel towards uh, a greater role of uh, social objective politics over economics is, uh, is unmistakable. Um, it's playing out, and I think uh, we, sh we should all acknowledge that. It changes the lens of, in of investment. However, um, you know, we've seen a very steep decline in activity uh, throughout the course of uh, 2021. I mean, you know, from 18% uh, earlier this year to uh, Q4 that's gonna look sub four uh, as far as we're concerned. So that's a pretty steep decline. And even a country that is, um, you know, uh, on a path to uh, put other objectives in front, um, I think they cannot ignore uh, this weakening growth. So that makes us, you know, um, we've been neutral on Chinese equities uh, from for for the last few months, um, but uh, we start to think now that it's time to dip our toe back um, or start to dip our toe uh, in in the Chinese equities. Uh, uh, given that um, you know we see some easing of uh, the various policy tools uh, over the next few months. Wait, Jean, can you elaborate on dipping your toe back into Chinese equities? Where do you see as sort of a safe place to park amid still a lot of ongoing uncertainty? Uh, I should I should clarify the back because we've just uh, broken out uh, Chinese equities as a as a standalone asset class uh, for the first time in in June our mini outlook so I mean there's no bag aspect so but we're, we're dipping our toes uh, in the sense that you know you've seen a 25% on the performance of the Chinese uh, equities over U.S. equities uh, for good reasons that's where we were neutral. Uh, but at the same time, that's a pretty, uh, the gap has, uh, has been pretty material in terms of the two regions. And while there's a lot of uncertainty, I mean, that means the risk premium has increased quite considerably. And now I think it's the time to think about opportunities reappearing. Uh, I'm thinking about you know, broad market exposure here as opposed to specific. And, um, but that broad market exposure, that broad market story, I think, is, has repriced quite a bit. John, just quickly, final question. How do you reconcile your bond market call, your Federal Reserve call, with where you want to own? in the equity market domestically here in America? So we think the, the bond market call, just to clarify, is uh, we think rates on the way, way up on the 10 year, we've been like uh, increasing our underweight of US treasuries uh, over the course of the last few months. Our conviction has not waned despite the fact that it, it had been st stubbornly low over the course of the last few months. Uh, but we think the, the direction is up. That said, it's in the context to go back where we started, where uh, we're going to see a very shallow uh, normalization of policy rate in the U.S. And as a result, uh, and some more inflation coming, but this combination of uh, inflation coming through with very low rate, um, it's, it's, um, it's a real rate environment that's uh, very negative and continues to be. And that will be um, you know, supportive of, um, of uh, equity or risk asset, uh, even the U.S. We're neutral on U.S. equity, though, just to be clear. Uh, and I think that's more coming from uh, this, uh, at this juncture, the fiscal policy landscape on the tax front, debt ceiling. Uh, and, and we're going we're gonna to hear more this week. Um, 
Wait, hold on a second, John, just right there. Just, I want to make that clear. You care about the debt ceiling. We think there's headline risks around the debt ceiling. Ultimately, we put out a note last week where we say, uh, you know, there's going to be noise. The market is prone to be reacting to noise uh, in this juncture, like we said, but we will advise looking through. But the headline risk is there. But again, we have uncertainty around of how big this package will be as a result. We have uncertainty around corporate taxes and, and the like. And that's a neutral, the neutral stance on U.S. equity. John, thank you. John Bavan, there of BlackRock, the Investment Institute head. Right now, joining us on the political moment and what it means for economics, finance, and investment, Gregory Vellier joins us with AGF Investments, always astute on the moment at hand. Greg, I am dumbfounded by Democrats taking a victory now like it was 64-65 in the resounding win of LBJ. Lyndon Baines Johnson, off of the assassination of JFK, took 61% of the vote. Biden took 51.3% of the vote. How much of a majority does a president have to ram through this set of legislative pieces? He doesn't have much, Tom. I think that that is one of the big realizations over the last weekend. Nancy Pelosi, of all people, said that we're not going to be at $3.5 trillion. That was a big concession, in my opinion. And then she threw out another concession, Tom, and that is that we're not going to have a government shutdown at the end of this week. They'll do an extension. So those two things make me a little more optimistic. I'm, in, I'm not euphoric. But I think the chances of a major crisis are still remote. And then one final point, I urge everyone to read the Wall Street Journal piece on the Fed's tools. If we were to have a debt, real debt crisis and a default crisis, the Fed has options. They can sell some of their treasuries. They can buy defaulting treasuries. So this, this is a serious story, but it's not an apocalyptic story. Mm-hmm. Greg, very importantly, do you sense negotiations that are normal, that they have a give and take and a back and forth among well-meaning politicians? No, <laughs> I don't see it yet. I, I think that there's a lot of anger at Mitch McConnell because the Republicans spent like drunken sailors for four years with tax cuts and a lot of spending. I think there's a lot of resentment toward him. Right now, frankly, I think the negotiations that really matter are among Democrats. You still got to get a handful of very important moderates on board. That's coming. Uh, but I think a deal with Republicans comes uh, later in the fall. Greg, you mentioned this Nick Timoreau story in the Wall Street Journal. Let's go there. This idea that the Fed could be thrust once again into the political spotlight, actually taking a role in trying to stave off a political default. How much is this a risk for the Federal Reserve that when Congress stalls out and can't get stuff done, the Federal Reserve has to sort of be left holding the bag and takes a lot of heat as a result on all sides? Yeah, Lisa, it's a good point. They dread this. They don't want to get an image of being the, you know, the lender of last resort. Uh, And I think they would make it clear this is an exception. But you read the piece that they've been there before. They've considered these options. There's a lot of controversy with them, including some of the active traders at the Fed. And now there's going to be controversy over this. Well, you know, that's just the way things are right now. It's a very controversial, uh, dysfunctional period in Washington. It's the way things are, especially at a time when Fed Chair Jay Powell is up uh, for the potential renomination by Jerome, uh, by uh, President Biden. There's a question, though, here, how much inflation is starting to concern Democrats more than it had previously. And perhaps this is one of the reasons for some of the concessions that Nancy Pelosi made. Do you really feel like that's the case? 
Yeah, I, I think that more and more voters around the country are linking together higher prices and big spending. I'm not sure the correlation is there, but the voters believe that. And as long as they do, I think a price tag like $3.5 trillion is just too rich. Greg, I was looking at Ed Case of Hawaii. It's a hugely Democratic state, and he is clearly a moderate Democrat as well. What does Speaker Pelosi have to offer moderates, blue dogs like Ed Case of Hawaii? Well, not a lot, Tom. That's that's one of the problems here. Uh, maybe she's going to offer him a better chance of getting uh, reelected. An awful lot of Democrats uh, I talk to, or their staffs anyway, are saying they're scared about 2022. The, the issue is not will the Republicans win the House. The issue is by how much will they win the House by 10, 12, 15, 20 seats? When you start talking about numbers like that, a lot of people like the gentleman from uh, Hawaii run for cover. So just before we let you go, you said that three and a half trillion dollar plan is a pipe dream. Even Nancy Pelosi said that. What are you yeah. seeing in terms of what the likely bill will look like in terms of size and in terms of taxes? Well, under two, but there's so many gimmicks. Some of these programs are five years, some are seven, some are 10. Some will expire and then get shoved, shoved off to the states. There's a lot of gimmickry, but I think that uh, let's say something more around two uh, is, is far more likely and it's not imminent. Greg Vallier of AGF Investments. Greg, thank you. On the week ahead and beyond. We have a rare treat right now. We'll get right to it. Lloyd Miner is one of the most different physicians I know out there. He is someone with world-class first-order research on the balance of the ear. He has taken that over to medicine and the management of hospitals and all, among other things, at Johns Hopkins, a residency at Duke a few years ago, and holds court in Palo Alto right now. What's your biggest headache right now, Dean? I think our biggest concern right now is to make sure that we continue to provide outstanding health care, that we take care of our students, <clears throat> 18,000 students back on our campus, right. and that we comply with the uh, federal mandate that the Biden administration has uh, issued with regard to uh, the vaccine mandate. What is your strategy with your unvaccinated staff? Well, first, Tom, we have a highly vaccinated What's group your of people now. Roughly? It's between 95 and 97%. Really? Within board. your hospitals? Within our hospitals, yes. Very impressive. And, and yeah. around the university, it's similar. I mean, we're still gathering that information. We want to make sure that, that we're providing those who wish to apply for a religious or medical exemption, that we provide the avenue to you know, issue that application and have it reviewed. Uh, but we know that these vaccinations are among the safest and most effective vaccinations ever developed. We want to make sure that we answer any questions people have and ultimately get mm. a fully vaccinated workforce. Meanwhile, Dr. Minor, over in New York State, uh, there is a mandate that healthcare workers uh, get vaccinated. And actually, the governor, Kathy Hochul, has said that she may bring in the National Guard to fill empty healthcare roles uh, once this mandate goes into effect, which is this week. What do you make of all this? It's really important that our healthcare organizations, hospitals, clinics be able to continue to provide outstanding care. You know, the real tragedy early on in the pand pandemic was in places like New York, where the healthcare workforce became overwhelmed. We had too many patients uh, overwhelming our facilities and our workforce. 
So I think having skilled, trained healthcare personnel, if that's the National Guard, uh, then then perhaps that's appropriate. But making sure we continue to provide care to patients when they need it by skilled personnel is going to be really important. Dr. Dr. Minor, if there are people who doubt the uh, efficacy or doubt the potential risks of the vaccine, what does it send them in terms of messaging that a lot of healthcare workers are not getting vaccinated themselves? I think it's a difficult message and uh, and one that concerns me a lot. Uh, we we have a highly vaccinated healthcare workforce where we are, and I think that's true across most areas of the country. It's the pandemic has been overwhelming, an overwhelming experience for all of us. But I think the steps that the FDA, the CDC have taken to ensure the safety and efficacy of these vaccines are remarkable. And we need to do the best job we can in healthcare to communicate that message so that more people feel reassured and get vaccinated. Our listeners, our viewers have to be confused by the cacophony of politics, FDA, federal this, maybe World Health Organization, but certainly CDC. What's your desire for CDC and Washington officials to get on the same page? Tom, I think it's really important that that federal this agencies be aligned, right uh, and the FDA and CDC in particular are aligned. And and I think uh, Dr. Walensky, Director Walensky, of course, ultimately uh, issued a ruling aligning the CDC recommendations pretty much with the FDA recommendations. But there was, as you described, there was a lot of back and forth with the advisory committee. Now, it's important to have advisory committees; they represent a diversity of opinions and areas of expertise. But at the end of the day, it's up to the leaders uh, to make sure the alignment's there. Is is this a one-off? Like, is this something new for you with all of your decades of experience? Or is this sort of the way the sausage is made within the vaccine bacteria community? Well, COVID is certainly a one-off for all of us. But Mm -hmm. And and I think ordinarily, uh, Tom, these disagreements do exist in a healthy way between regulatory agencies. But... We're in the midst of a huge crisis, and so alignment and coordination is particularly important getting us through this crisis. Dr. Munner, there was a study that came out of Oxford University that came out this morning that said that American men lost more than two years of lifespan as a result of the COVID pandemic. When we look back on this period, what will be the healthcare legacy of the COVID pandemic? Well, I hope the legacy will be how we responded as a, as a nation and how we responded as a healthcare community. Certainly, there are many aspects of that response that we wish were different, uh, but I think we've all learned a lot and are learning a lot. I am just so proud every day to work with an amazing group of dedicated healthcare professionals where I am at Stanford, and I would say that about really healthcare workers around the, the country, and supporting our healthcare workforce during these uh, trying times is going to be particularly important as we all get through this together. Mr. Miner, thank you so much for joining Bloomberg today in New York. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. Lloyd Miner has been with us many, many times here across the arc of this pandemic, and we look for further conversations. Of course, Stanford University School of Medicine, Dean, as well. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.